This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In the campaign, Trump lay on a bed of nails. He had so many different problems, but his weight was equally distributed. Think of this as sort of like you've got two armies. You've got the prosecution and the defense. And if one army has all of the weaponry and the other has none whatsoever, it's not going to be a very fair fight. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the courts and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover that stuff for Slate. Another week, another round of nasty remarks from President Donald Trump about another federal judge. The president's latest volley was directed at a district court judge in California who, at least temporarily, blocked the White House from withholding federal funds from so-called sanctuary cities. And later on in today's show, we're going to try to catch up with our old new friend, the Constitution's Emoluments Clause. But first, this week marked the end of oral arguments for the time being, at least at the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices heard their last case of the term on Wednesday, and decisions will come in June. The case we want to talk about today was heard on Monday, and it tries to set a legal standard for what kind of expert psychiatric assistance an indigent defendant should be given at his trial. Oddly enough, that's the exact same question that the state of Arkansas is trying to figure out and the reason they actually stayed some executions last week. The case as it came to the Supreme Court is called McWilliams versus Dunn. This case actually dates back to a 1984 capital conviction of James McWilliams, who raped and murdered Patricia Reynolds during a robbery at the Tuscaloosa, Alabama convenience store where she worked. McWilliams claims he was entitled to a psychological expert who could have helped him prove his mental illness. The state of Alabama and several federal appeals courts claim, no, he was only entitled to a neutral expert. Stephen Bright, who's been working on death penalty litigation at the Southern Center for Human Rights since 1982, represented Mr. McWilliams at oral argument at the court. Welcome back to Amicus Steve. Thank you for having me. Steve, before we dive in on the legal question, let me ask you just the the purely health question, which is what sorts of mental health impairments uh, was your client alleged to be suffering from? Well, there were two that were critical, but they were came right at the last minute. The uh, He was sent for an evaluation by a neuropsychologist who conducted a number of very sophisticated uh, tests on him, uh, the leading cutting-edge tests, 
And he came back and said that he had brain damage, that he had a lesion on in the, in the right hemisphere of his brain, uh, that it was a serious, uh, significant pathology uh, with regard to his brain. And, of course, what that means uh, is that his brain has gotten the connectors and so forth are either broken or are injured, and he's not on everything that the brain does, judgment, how you go about various things, uh, are affected by that. In addition to that, the records from the prison showed that he had been on a very powerful psychotropic drug the entire time that he had been at the prison. And so one of the things the lawyers wanted to know is, if, if there's nothing wrong with this guy, why is he on this powerful psychotropic medicine? And so both of those things were sort of in play here at the sentencing hearing, but they did not get the report that told him about the brain damage until two days before the hearing. The hearing was on the 9th. They got that on the 7th. And then on the 8th, they got some of the hospital records. And then on the very day of the hearing, they got the records from the prison. And so the, these lawyers just basically were overwhelmed. I mean, they had more records than they could possibly go through. They had a report, which they didn't fully understand because they were lay people. They weren't psychiatrists or psychologists. Uh, and so they desperately pleaded with the judge to give them time to get someone in who could help them uh, understand all of what they had and then present information to the judge about James McWilliams and, and his uh, impairments. And at the trial itself, the only people who testified about the childhood head injury and the possible uh, uh, mental health issues was McWilliams himself and his mom, right? There was no expert at trial. Well, that's right. And there are two trials, remember, in Alabama, because in Alabama, the judge can override the jury. Mm -hmm. So there was a sentencing phase before a jury, in which case the only witnesses to say anything about Mr. McWilliams' impairment was himself and his mother, who described these head injuries he had had and how they had affected him. Now, the state put on three doctors from the state hospital, which is sort of notorious for almost always finding nothing wrong with the defendants that they look at. I mean, they're sent people all the time from the courts, and they decided that he was sane at the time of the crime. That is, he had no insanity defense. Uh, he was competent for trial. That is, he knew what was going on in the trial. And they went way out on a limb and said that there was absolutely nothing that mitigated the crime that he had committed. Uh, and so basically, they, on every level, turned him down. Uh, and then right before the judge sentencing, which comes after that, is when there was this neuropsychological examination done, uh, which revealed this brain damage. So can you walk us through, I think it's important to lay out the precedent in this case, 1985 case, Ake versus Oklahoma, that sets the standards, the sort of baseline of the kind of help that an indigent defendant can seek, right? That's right. So tell us what the standard is after Ake. Well, it's much like, and it may be good to sort of uh, think of this as sort of like you've got two armies, you've got the prosecution and the defense. And if one army has all of the weaponry and all the tanks and everything else and the other has none whatsoever, it's not going to be a very fair fight. Uh, and it's going to be pretty one-sided. And the system that we had in the courts is the prosecution, of course, can uh, hire experts to testify with regard to their position on mental health issues or, for that matter, anything else that 
might be contested. On the other side of the street, a poor person accused of a crime, of course, has no money to hire an expert witness or uh, an investigator or anything else. And and the Supreme Court in 1985, in this case called Ake versus Oklahoma, held that where it was a significant issue in the case, the mental state of the defendant is a significant issue in the case, that in that case, the defendant had a right to at least one expert, one mental health expert to sort of, it wouldn't even the playing field, certainly, but it would at least give the defense some guidance about what disorder or injury to the brain the defendant might have, how it might affect his behavior, uh, those sorts of things, so that there could be at least some chance to present uh, affirmatively information about the defendant and about, in this case, his brain damage. So I think that there's two things going on that we need to explain. One is, you know, you have his lawyer saying, I'm imploring you, judge, give us a continuance, give us someone to help us understand what just happened. And the judge just summarily saying, you know, take lunch, you got a couple of hours and I'm uh, sentencing him to death. And by the way, I think he's faking. But then you have the other piece of this, which is, and I think this is hard for lay listeners to understand, because this is a habeas petition, you have to show that the rule set out in A, that you're seeking, which is more help than that, is clearly established law. Can you explain why the standard is so high? Yes, up until uh, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act was uh, passed, uh, Williams would be able just simply to say, uh, I was entitled to an expert under Ake versus Oklahoma, and I didn't get one, and the court would just simply make a determination of whether there had been a violation of the court's decision in Ake. Uh, but then Congress decided to put this kind of layer, almost a filter, over the top of the legal issues, including the constitutional issues, that says you can only uh, have your case reversed for a federal constitutional violation if the federal basis that you're relying upon uh, is, was clearly established by a decision of the United States Supreme Court. It doesn't matter if there's a consensus of all the other courts. If there hasn't been a uh, holding by the United States Supreme Court that clearly establishes the point, uh, then uh, you can't rely upon that case. And that's what we were arguing about on Monday, was whether we think that the egg decision clearly established the right to an expert independent of the prosecution that the person on trial has got a right to an expert that his lawyer can talk to, ask questions to, have to do evaluations, help prepare for taking on the state's case, even testifying in behalf of the defense, and that that lawyer can't be in both camps. Uh, it's an adversary system. And if it's going to be an adversary system, it means that that expert is either going to be uh, an expert for the defense or an expert for the prosecution, but uh, our position is can't be both. So let's look at that language in Ake for a minute, because I think we spent, you're quite right, a, a whole hour, I think, trying to parse whether this language means an expert for the defense or someone neutral who dumps a file on counsel table. The language says after Ake uh, that uh, you have to be allowed to have an expert who can help you, quote, conduct a professional examination, help determine whether that defense is viable, to present testimony, to assist in preparing the cross-examination 
examination of the state psychiatric witness, end quote. So really the question becomes, is that descriptor fulfilled by someone who more or less gives you a file, right? They got a, a, an independent report. And uh, I think that there was at least some feeling, at least the word that I kept hearing was ambiguous, that Justice Sam Alito and Anthony Kennedy and the chief justice said, oh, that's pretty open-ended test, right? Yes, that's, that's at least what they said. But I think the, the key thing that was at stake here is back in the old days, the thought was, Yes, you send the defendant off, and there's a psychiatrist in town, and that psychiatrist does an examination, and everybody sort of goes along with whatever uh, he or she says. But but those days are long gone. I mean, today, as the Supreme Court uh, acknowledged in its opinion in the eight case in 1985, uh, mental health issues are very hotly contested. Uh, in all kinds of legal proceedings, and certainly in one like this. And you're going to have some doctors who are going to say, as happened here, uh, there's really nothing wrong with this guy at all. He's malingering. And then you're going to have other doctors who are going to say, this person is suffering from a major mental illness that really affects uh, the way he processes information, the way he acts, the way he makes judgments, and so forth. And uh, in the court system, in the adversary system, uh, the way you sort that out is to present all of that evidence to a jury, and the jury makes the decision. Uh, may or may not be right, uh, but the jury can't possibly make a reliable decision if it doesn't have any information from the defense, if it only has one version of facts before it. So another, I thought, intriguing moment was when uh, the newest justice, Justice Neil Gorsuch, asked directly, I think, in response to what you're saying, look, where do you draw the line if everyone is entitled to uh, their own you know, defense team mental health expert? Aren't they also entitled to every other kind of expert? So let's have a listen. Where's the stopping point? Is it, is it just psychiatry? Would we also have to apply the same rule in other kinds of medicine? Perhaps forensic science. Um, where is the stopping point that you would advocate for the court? Well, I wouldn't advocate it because it's not before the court in this case. But and it would be something we'd have the, an implication we clearly have to consider. Well, um, but but the thing that the court has to consider here is the unique nature of mental health and the fact that experts widely disagree on mental health. Experts widely disagree on everything. That's why that, you hire them. And that may mean. Uh, and why they cost so very much. And, 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 and many courts, state courts, other courts have said, and of course under the Criminal Justice Act and the federal courts, that where there are other issues, there may be other experts. It's a due process question. So Steve, is he wrong there? Is there something so fundamentally different about mental health expert witnesses that they differ from, say, forensic accountants? And are you asking for the defense team to be given every kind of expert under the sun or is mental health different? Well, I thought that question was very unfortunate because it really put the um, trying to limit this and limit the amount of money that would be involved ahead of the the real question here, which is a fair trial. Mm -hmm. How do you get a fair trial? And one of the basis for the Ake decision that the Supreme Court decided in 1985 was they said mental health is, is unique because there's such a vast difference in the way different doctors uh, see mental health issues. 
uh, and there's wide disagreement, and it's very important, and it often is outcome determinative in, in many cases. But what, unfortunately, Judge Gorsuch apparently doesn't know is that in most of the states today, any time there's a critical issue that's going to decide the case that turns on expert testimony, uh, there's going to be an expert on both sides. I mean, most states today, in his home state of Colorado, uh, which has an excellent public defender system, I can assure you that if a case goes to trial where the prosecution's case rests on the testimony of an expert witness, the defense is going to have an expert witness to contest that. Because, again, if we're going to have an adversary system, if we're going to have a system where you know, both sides make their best case. Uh, you, you can't have one side being totally armed for battle and the other side not having anything at all. Steve, one of the things that a lot of folks said uh, when we were getting ready to hear McWilliams is because this just doesn't happen anymore, because you are in most instances going to get your expert, this doesn't actually implicate a whole lot of people. It's just, you know, this is an accident of history that McWilliams, you know, this issue has been on the table for decades. But oddly enough, in Arkansas, uh, we just stayed two executions last week on the same issue. So how many people does this in fact affect? Well, I was going to say nobody knows, I don't think, how many cases it would impact. But the fact that there were two people set for execution in Arkansas on the same night, uh, Don Davis and Bruce Ward, uh, and that they were stayed because they have this very same issue in their case. And so their cases were, they were not executed, and their cases were put on hold until the McWilliams case is decided. Mm-hmm. Um, so we at least know that those two people are affected, but uh, there are going to be other people uh, who did not get expert assistance. Uh, and depending upon how this case comes out, it could mean that they would get a new trial. Last question, Steve. One of the things that I heard you say time and again at argument were arguments about just poverty, about what it is to be an indigent defendant. And, you know, I think you said, look, if you're you know wealthy and in Texas, you can just hire as many folks as you want. How much is poverty the issue in this case? I mean, it seems like it's it's under everything. But I think that your feeling was you really can't have an adversarial system if one person is desperately poor and just doesn't have the resources that the other side has, right? I mean, this does come down to poverty as well as mental health? Well, that's absolutely right. It comes down to poverty. Uh, if you have this same mental health issue in a case um, with a person of means, somebody who can afford uh, mental health experts, then they'll they'll have one or more mental health experts, and and they they'll try to hire the best people they can find uh, to testify. The prosecution is certainly going to hire uh, the best witness it can. Of course, the state hospital will have witnesses probably that the prosecution will use because those witnesses tend to be pro prosecution. Uh, so, and, and of course, if you had civil cases where you had people suing about some issue that might have mental health in it, uh, if the people had enough money, they would each have experts. Uh, the only person left out in the cold is the poor person accused of a crime, and the Supreme Court didn't say we're going to level the playing field. Uh, we're going to give you an expert every bit as good as the prosecution's expert. Or we're going to give you more than one if you need it. What the court said is very modest. They said, we will give you one competent expert. And 
defendant doesn't even get to choose who the expert is. So basically, the judge appoints the expert, and the expert is hopefully competent. Uh, and then that expert's responsibility uh, is to advise the defense lawyers about all aspects of, of mental health that are at play in the case. Steve Bright has been working on death penalty litigation at the Southern Center for Human Rights since 1982. He's stepping away from that to teach other brilliant young lawyers. And he represented James McWilliams in McWilliams versus Dunn, argued this week. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You may remember a conversation we had on this show back in December with Zephyr Teachout all about the formerly obscure, suddenly fantastically interesting section of the Constitution known as the Emoluments Clause. And at the time, she mentioned that she and other anti-corruption experts were thinking through legal options for holding President Trump accountable to that clause. Well, just a few weeks after that conversation, the Center for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington announced that it was filing a lawsuit alleging that Donald Trump's continuing business interests put him in violation of the Emoluments Clause. At the time, some observers questioned whether this group, known somewhat menacingly by its initials, crew, had standing to even file such a suit. But last week, two new plaintiffs joined onto the suit, leading some to believe that it may actually now have real legs in court. Norman Eisen is a fellow at the Brookings Institution who served as Barack Obama's ambassador to the Czech Republic and before that as Obama's ethics czar. He is one of the founders of CREW and the board chair there, and he joins me today to discuss the latest developments on the anti-corruption front in Washington, D.C. So, Norm, welcome to Amicus. Thank you, Dahlia, and hello to all the Amicus listeners. So, Norm, start. I, I just have to start with the question that I know you get asked all the time, but I have to ask it, which is that you and Richard Painter, he was George W. Bush's ethics expert. You're like the Rogers and Hammerstein, the Simon and Garfunkel of ethics enforcement in America, right? You guys suddenly became rock stars. You have nothing in common. And suddenly you're the guys, the go-to guys on ethics. Can you please explain to me how two people who I would not have put on the same album uh, are suddenly in lockstep on this issue? Uh, well, um, I'm definitely the Art Garfunkel of the duo, uh, complete with my locks. Uh, I like to think that we get along a little better than Simon and Garfunkel did. Uh, Painter and I, I first uh, knew him by his writings because when I arrived uh, in the White House to take over as Obama's ethics are, you inherit uh, the files, some of the files uh, of your predecessors. And uh, there were some painter memos and writings in there on some of the ethics issues. And I really felt a kinship with him, Dahlia, because he uh, took the same uh, hardline approach that was to earn me so many unflattering nicknames for <laughs> my White House tenure, Mr. No, 
the fun sponge. I was shocked when I read that in the Washington <laughs> Post that people were calling me the fun sponge. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, we ended up writing together. And then when I was asked to come back as the chair of the watchdog group I had founded, Crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, because I believe so much in trying to work across the aisle, and I think ethics should be uh, nonpartisan, I said, well, I'll do it if Painter uh, will co-lead it with me as vice chair. And he was willing. And so uh, we developed that dimension to our relationship as well. So I want you to start by, this really is going to sound like I'm saying, Norm, recite the Constitution standing on one foot. And I don't want to be unreasonable, but I want you to help listeners. We've talked about the Foreign Emoluments Clause. That was really, I think, in play when we first started litigating in January. But now suddenly there's this domestic emoluments clause and it's different. And now it's been grafted onto the other emoluments. Can you help our listeners understand there are two different parts of the Constitution and we've only been talking about the foreign emoluments clause until suddenly we're talking about domestic. So help us understand what's going on. Yes, I'm going to Take your listeners back to the beginnings uh, of the United States uh, in uh, the 18th century and the anxieties of uh, the framers of the Constitution and the founders of our country. And one of their main anxieties was that uh, because of the power that our republic invests in uh, the president, that a president could be bought off to compromise the interests of the United States as a whole. And there were two different types of anxieties about how a president could be bought off by government that animated uh, those uh, heroes who gave us our country, including our system of checks and balances. One anxiety was expressed in the Foreign Emoluments Clause. And that was the anxiety that a foreign government would provide cash or other benefits to an American president and would cause the American president to compromise the interests of the United States. This was not a fantasy because it was common practice in the 18th century for foreign sovereigns, the Bourbon throne, paid off King Charles, for example, distorted uh, British policy for for decades that way. And American officials had been the targets uh, of payments from foreign governments. So for a fledgling new country, this was not an abstract, an obscure, or a remote possibility. It was a terror of the founders and the framers. And that's why they gave us the Foreign Emoluments Clause of Article 1, which provides that um, no presence, cash, benefits, or as they referred to them, emoluments, quote, of any kind, whatever, may be accepted by a president. It's very sweeping, a subject only to congressional consent, which, of course, we don't have with Trump. Now, that's foreign cash and benefits. But there was another worry, and it may have been an even greater worry, Dahlia, than the foreign emoluments. Certainly, it was just as profound. And that was that a president of the United States would be paid off by the federal government to benefit it at the expense of the states, 
or paid off by one or more of the states to benefit them at the expense of the feds and the other states. Why were the founders and the framers so worried about that? Because, as you know, and your listeners know, uh, the uh, United States was cobbled together, our federal system, uh, by these uh, individual state sovereigns who had uh, a lot of sovereign authority. And there was a big debate about the proper balance of power among the states and between the states and the federal government. It's still a live issue today. So to deal with that in Article 2 of the Constitution, the founders uh, and framers put in a rule that the president may not accept any other compensation from the federal government or any of the states apart from his salary. And that's the Domestic Emoluments Clause. And uh, those are the two concerns, and they are live concerns today. That's why we've brought our amended complaint, uh, which builds out the domestic emoluments issues in addition to the foreign emoluments one and does a bunch of other things, including adding more plaintiffs. So give us an example, because I think that we understood, you know, the snuff box and the horse. We understand what the stakes are in the foreign emoluments clause. And I think we've talked about it a lot in this country. But give us an example of a domestic emoluments violation that is now on the table. Well, I'm tremendously concerned about the many discretionary uh, grants, uh, payments, uh, other benefits, permits uh, that uh, Mr. Trump requires uh, for his hotels. There's a, a large amount of these benefits that he gets Often he's notoriously litigious. He fights about them. So uh, these are flows of, of things of great value in any state where he has a property. How can we be sure that he's not going to attempt to favor those properties and the states where those properties exist at the expense of the other states and the federal government. And there's so many of them. Just today, Reuters was out with a story. I was very pleased uh, to be one of the experts that they talked to for the story about the ways that state pension funds are invested in Trump property. So uh, uh, there's a lot of these, and uh, that's contrary to the Constitution. And importantly, the founders didn't set up any kind of an intent test. They didn't want to get into the question of what was going on in the head of the president. They simply said, no foreign government cash or other benefits or presents, none from the federal government besides your salary, and none from the states. And he's violating it uh, all over the country and all over the world. So um, that's why we're litigating. But let me ask you just a structural question for a minute, Norm, sure. which is, I, I, you know, you said right up front, this is meant to be Congress enforcing this. And there's a way in which there's such a limit to what a court can do, right? I mean, A, I think that there is this question you're going to get, which is, is this even properly justiciable? Isn't this a political question? Don't we let the political branches handle this? That seems to be what the framers contemplated. But more pointedly, what can a court do? I mean, if folks just want to stay at a Trump hotel because they think they're going to curry favor with the president, there's not much we can do about that, right? 
Well, certainly the framers did not intend emoluments to be a political question because there's no waiver provision for domestic emoluments. Congress doesn't have the power to waive it. Mm -hmm. These types of issues of uh, federal officials um, receiving improper payments were commonly litigated in the um, early uh, federal era. Uh, nobody's been bold enough since to try to do what Trump has done. Uh, so it's clear that it's not a, a political question. We think it's fully justiciable by the federal courts. Um, and then as to your the second part of the question, it's actually pretty simple. The court has the power to tell as a co-equal branch of government in the system of checks and balances, which I'm so glad we have now when you see the rampant illegality in the White House, the court will simply say to Mr. Trump, and he must listen, no more emoluments. You must stop taking foreign presence, cash, and benefits and domestic ones from the federal government and from the states or any agents or instrumentalities of those governments. Then uh, it's going to be up to Trump to say how he's going to comply with that. Well, he's going to say, I already complied with it. Norm, remember that big briefing we had with all the files and my lawyer telling you that I'm not even subject to these rules, right? I mean, if 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 it's up to him to comply, we're, we he's answered that, right? Well, it's not. That's the thing. It's not going to be unilateral. Most likely what courts do in these cases is, the you know, the court will, will ask, do the parties have standing? We think they do. Is the Constitution being violated? We think it is being violated. And then the court decides whether to order relief. And typically, when relief is ordered, the court will say, okay, guys, here's my ruling. Uh, now, how are we going to implement the relief? Both sides will put in an order. And, you know, we'll have back and forth with the lawyers uh, for the other side and with the court about what the terms of it will be. I think the way that Mr. Trump will have to comply is simply to do what every president has done for the past 40 years, which is to divest their holdings into a blind trust or the equivalent. So they don't have business entanglements. And Mr. Trump can do that very simply uh, by signing a paper, uh, short power of attorney, turning all of his ownership interests, just as he did his management interests, although he's backed off on that because now we know he's talking to his son about management. But he can say, I'm turning over my ownership interest to you, Mr. Trustee, independent professional, not a family member, with instructions to sell them as expeditiously as humanly possible. What more can he do than that? That's what other presidents have done, both parties. That's what he should do. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So, so this is, I guess, at least tangentially related to what you just said. I think one of the things that Trump has said over and over again is people don't care. And more more pointedly, I think Norm, people don't understand anymore the anti-corruption stuff. And and so we're in this weird whack-a-mole world, right, where we're talking, even I'm thinking of the piece you did in USA Today with Richard Painter this week. We're talking about the GSA and the hotel and Ivanka and the Chinese trademarks and the Mar-a-Lago and the State Department. There is so much stuff going on that it is this galactic game of whack-a-mole. And I think it's not that people don't care, but that they don't know how to focus anymore. So would you do us the courtesy of telling our listeners how you even triage when you think about all the stuff that you've described, how you even think about what matters, what doesn't, what's secondary, what's tertiary, what do we focus on when we're thinking about anti-corruption principles and this administration? Well, I do think the American people care about it. Um, for example, somewhere between 75 and 80 percent in poll after poll say they want to see his taxes. Part of the reason for that is they want to understand the questions of these foreign payments. Uh, and I would say in terms of prioritizing, and you have to prioritize, Dahlia, because you know Trump was uh, brilliant at this. Um, Paul Begala likes to say, you know, in the campaign, Hillary had uh, Trump lay on a bed of nails. He had so many different problems, but his weight was equally distributed, like a swami who can lie on a bed of nails. Whereas Hillary, there was one stake, which was the uh, the the email controversy. So there's this problem of the you know the plethora. Every day brings a new flood of ethics violations, violations of regulations and law and the Constitution. Here's how I think your listeners should focus. The top, and it's what I do, we do need to stay focused on Mr. Trump because he's at the top of the pyramid. And we need to focus on the violations that have the most, represent the most danger to our country. The single most worrying one is how is it possible that in the midst of an investigation of Russia's attack, there's no doubt that Russia attacked our democracy uh, with intent to benefit Mr. Trump and did benefit Mr. Trump in the election. In the midst of an investigation of that, where we've seen so many Trump associates who have lied uh, or engaged in other misconduct relating to Russia, uh, some of whom have been fired, like Mr. Flynn, who've had to recuse, like Mr. Sessions, who are under investigation, like Mr. Nunes. Let's stay focused on Donald Trump and on the key question. Did he have financial motivations that are hidden in his taxes to favor Russia? Does that explain his and his associates' bizarre behavior? His son said, before Trump ran for office, his son said they see a lot of Russian money flowing in to their businesses uh, and that Russians are a very important cross-section of their assets. So that's the most important question about foreign government cash that we have. Uh, China China denied Mr. Trump to take just one example. They denied him a trademark for years of fighting. He, he lost over and over again. He's going to become president. He says 
I am going to reexamine the one China policy. He reaches out to Taiwan. He gets his trademark that they've denied him, and he flip-flops on China. How can we trust him if he's going to cave that easily, perhaps in response to that one illegal trademark? It's against the Constitution to give a present like that. There can be no doubt it was a present. They denied it to him for years. If he's going to flip-flop that easily, how can we trust him to fight for the American jobs that have been hemorrhaging out to China and the many other countries where he does business around the world? So I think you need to go through it one issue. It's hard to do it one issue at a time because it's not just Trump. It's Ivanka and Jared. It's the other members of the White House staff. My organization crew has filed complaints asking whether Mr. Liddell, an assistant to the president, engaged in criminal conduct by benefiting businesses he was invested in. Whether Mr. Bannon is having improper contacts with uh, the place where he used to work, whether Kellyanne Conway was using the White House to sell Ivanka's products. So it's hard to focus. You've got to keep a broad focus, but above all, follow the Russian and Chinese money as it relates to Donald Trump. That's the most important. Norm, I have to ask you one last question before I let you go. And I know you think I only ask you this question because your name is Norm. But here's the question. This is about norms, ultimately, right? This is not necessarily about – I know. they're But, but I, I, it's not about – all of this is not necessarily about sort of hard and fast, bright line laws, right? This is about mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter divested. I mean, presidents divest. Uh, this is about just sort of – rules of the road that are not uh, necessarily things that are enforceable, right? Isn't that why I'm thinking also, you know, he's already going after uh, a judge uh, on the Sanctuary Cities order. I mean, presidents don't do the things he does. Yeah. And again, I think that that violation of norms is not only hard to enforce in a court, but I think a lot of people don't care. I think they like the fact that he violates norms. Well, uh First of all, I I have to tell you that uh, Norm Ornstein and I have taken to calling ourselves the ethical norms. (laughs) Uh, I think, uh, you know, we have been, along with many others, uh, leading the outcry against the violation of these um, values, these, these American values, really, that are instantiated in the norms. But it's not just about the norm violation because what happens is you start out to say some non-normative nasty things about Muslims or migrants, but then you back into a constitutional violation where courts are not slapping him on his wrist because he said something bad. They're slapping him on his wrist on the ban because he said something bad that revealed an intent that was improper for official action and so violated the Constitution. It's the same with this, uh, the norms of um, public service versus greed that uh, the president and his family are violating by hanging on to their businesses, pretty nakedly exploiting, in the president's case, his uh, public office for his own private gain. He spent a third of the days of the presidency visiting his businesses. Exactly the same as with the Muslim ban, though. He's backed into a set of violations on accepting uh, presents, cash, other benefits from foreign governments, the federal government, and the state governments. 
And uh, that is not a soft violation. That is a hard violation of a core, the most core document uh, in our rule of law system, the Constitution. And uh, we're going to be holding him to account for it uh, in a court of law. Norm Eisen is a fellow at the Brookings Institution. He served as Barack Obama's ambassador to the Czech Republic and before that as Obama's ethics czar. Uh, He's one of the founders of Crew and I think the only guest on this show to ever make me look really mellow in comparison. Norm Eisen, (laughs) thank you for joining us. Thanks, Talia. And that is going to do it for today's Simon and Garfunkel edition of Amicus. We are looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Our email is amicus at slate.com. You can always leave us a comment on facebook.com slash amicus podcast or, if you're feeling generous, a review on our page in the iTunes store. Just search for Amicus in the iTunes store and click on the ratings and reviews tab. Remember, if you've missed any of our past episodes, you can find all of them on slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll also find transcripts there a few days after each episode posts. Thank you, as ever, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Camille Mott is our intern. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with you next week with another edition of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.